From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The colossal utility Excel made record profits last year, at the same time customers opened sky-high bills. Excel loves to tell people that the recent rise in prices doesn't have anything to do with their profits, but that's only partially true. We take a closer look at your energy bill with CPR's Andrew Kenny and Sam Brash, and we find out how power companies ended up monopolies. An overriding question, is it time to rethink the business model for how we get energy? Then, the great buildings Denver has lost, including a place called Brinton Terrace, built in 1882. Artists of all sorts could live under one roof and collaborate. Hmm. And it got to be very bohemian. There were architects, visual artists, sculptors, poets, singers, musicians, you name it, any kind of art. There are a lot of personal stories we don't hear. And I just started crying in the middle of the store. From people and places that are just around the corner and just beyond sight. I'm Luis Antonio Perez. I'm on a mission to find these stories in Colorado and share them with you. The fire has given me resolve for prioritizing my life. My Story So Far is a new podcast from Colorado Public Radio that brings you personal stories from around the state. Find My Story So Far wherever you get podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. On one hand, sky-high utility bills. On the other, record corporate profits. Many Coloradans, including lawmakers here, wonder if it's time to rethink utility giant Excel's business model. We are turning much of today's show over to our colleagues at Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. Climate and environment reporter Sam Brash joins public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny. If you live around Denver, you've definitely heard about it or worried about it and most likely even directly experienced it. It's the skyrocketing cost of energy bills. It's no secret that everybody is drowning in Excel bills. People are deciding, should I put food on the table or pay my cell bill, you know? These are people who came to testify at a Colorado Public Utilities Commission hearing in January. As a reporter covering climate change, part of my job is to keep an eye on the PUC, which is usually a pretty boring process, but not this time. They come out and they look at my meter and they tell me there's no problem. Yet our bill has doubled, almost tripled on some months in the last six months. Sam, do you want to introduce yourself real quick before we go any further? You bet. I'm Sam Brash. I'm a climate and environment reporter here in the CPR newsroom. And I actually hosted this show once long, long ago. So it is said. So it is said. And and this moment, this hearing we're listening to right now, is the moment I realized this was going to be a bigger story than a normal story to hit the PUC. Because we knew people had seen their bills go up. But this is when I realized just how bad it was for some people. As a real estate agent, I know that I am not alone. In the last couple of weeks, I've had multiple clients calling me, asking me, Janelle, what can I do? I can no longer afford to live here. We were already spread thin, and now our heat bill is going to make or break if we live in Colorado. Here's the thing. These complaints weren't just about the high energy costs. People were extra frustrated to be paying so much at a time when Excel Energy is making record profits. When Excel is making billions of dollars, and they're still getting the commissioners to to give them a high increase, a pay increase, 
the homeowners say, am I going to feed my family or am I going to pay the light and gas? It's ridiculous, you know? That anger wasn't just contained to this one PUC hearing that you attended. State lawmakers have been hearing it too. They even set up a whole special committee to look into Excel, to look into high energy costs. And it's resulted in some interesting scenes where they've started kind of dragging, not literally, but bringing executives to the Capitol to get answers about what's going on. One thing I've learned is that it is a complicated regulatory structure that utilities have sort of mastered over the years. (laughs) They have really figured out how to play in that sandbox to their benefit. That doesn't mean they're evil or doing things that are that are horrible, but it means that I think we do need to take a step back and make sure that the Public Utilities Commission and the way things are regulated, that the public interest is always what's most important. The rules that let Excel and other utilities operate the way they do in Colorado go back more than a century. But this winter of discontent has some people saying those rules are overdue for an update. And that update? changes to the playing field, to the utility structure, could have consequences that go way beyond power bills, getting into how we actually get electricity, period, and what the state's role is in fighting climate change. We're going to talk about where we get our power and how. This is a big part of a climate conversation, but when people's bills climb above what they can afford to pay, that conversation gets a lot bigger. In this episode, we're going to talk a lot about Excel Energy in particular. But before we go further, I think we need some context because Excel obviously is not the only utility in Colorado. Not at all. There are actually dozens of utilities in the state. In rural areas, you have these electric cooperatives. Lots of towns and cities have their own municipal utilities. And then there are these things called investor-owned utilities. Mm. In Colorado, this includes Excel and Black Hills. Black Hills covers Pueblo. But Excel is really the biggest game in town. The biggest game in Colorado. Mm-hmm. I looked this up, or actually, let's be honest, our editor Megan looked this up. Excel serves electricity to one and a half million households around the state. And those range from the Denver area to the Northern Front Range, even parts of the mountains and the Western Slope. I know I'm a customer. I think you're a customer, Sam. I am, and it's a lot of people. Most people are also gas customers of Excel Energy. They have more than a million gas customers in the state as well. So Excel, you used the term just a second ago, investor-owned. And that means basically that Excel is a publicly traded company that's owned by investors, right? It is, and this is gonna play a really big role in what we're gonna talk about. There are people out there, there are Excel shareholders who make money depending on what the company does. What it's doing right now is obviously billing its customers and that's upsetting them and it's actually raising charges for a lot of those customers. Right, and to understand why that's happening and whether it's going to keep happening, you have to understand how Excel operates in Colorado and how that's changing. So for the show, we're going to look at why Excel and other gas and power companies get to be monopolies in Colorado, not traditionally a word that we uh, like in capitalism, and why it's a similar deal across the country, and more specifically, how that impacts your bills and what Colorado as a state might or might not do about it. So Sam, let's start this explanation with a little show and tell. I actually brought my utility bills. Oh, very nice. One from this year, one from last year here to the studio. I printed out copies. And it, it is kind of funny to share your utility bill with someone. It's, like, oh, it's a little details. personal, yeah. A little peek into the Andy Kenny world. Is my house efficient? I don't know. 
Anyway, it's obviously a lot higher than it was last year. You know, my February bill, or maybe it was my January bill, was 50 bucks above the previous bill, nearing 200. That's electric and gas. And I want you to have a look and help me see what's going on in my bill personally. For sure. Whenever you look at a utility bill, it's always a little overwhelming. There's all these charges and it's tough to kind of break down what they might mean. Yeah, there's like four pages of numbers and charts on here. Exactly. But like with any utility bill, especially in Colorado, you really have three categories of charges. Okay. Uh, the first one is sort of just random dinky stuff. And we'll get into what those mean. <laughs> an official category? Yeah, I, I'd call it the randy dinky category. Randy dinky, okay. Um, and then you have fuel costs, and that's going to be really important. And then base rate. So those are the two that are the biggest part of your bill. All right. So random dinky. Um, I see almost a dollar here for the renewable energy standard adjustment and 75 cents for energy assistance. Is that stuff? Yeah, that's what we're talking about. This really isn't a lot of your bill, but it's usually programs for, like you said, energy bill assistance, funds for regulators. They're usually charges to fund specific state or local programs related to utilities and energy, stuff like that. And again, adding up to a couple few bucks in most cases. Usually, yeah. All right, so we're through the dinky rando stuff. That was like maybe a half dozen of the line items on my bill here. But now I want to turn to what makes up a big part of the costs that I see, and that is fuel costs. You mentioned this just a second ago. Yeah, they're listed right here on your bill as like natural gas or electric commodity. And a recent analysis by the Colorado Public Utilities Commission says rising fuel costs account for two thirds of the reasons bills went up this winter compared to last winter. So fuel costs are literally what it's costing to make the power that I'm using or right. to make the heat that I'm using. Or just the amount of natural gas and electricity you use. And because natural gas prices are way up in part because of the war in Ukraine, okay. uh, those are going to be higher. Also, you know, it's just a really cold winter, as a lot of us noticed. So people were generally using more gas than they had the year previously. They were just running their furnaces more. Makes sense. More power, more money. Still hurts, but it makes sense. Now, you also said that's only the reason for about two thirds of the increase is those rising actual fuel and electricity costs. So what does the other one third of the increase come from if it's not random dinky charges and actual electricity power costs? Right. So it's the last category I mentioned, which is base rates. What does that mean? How does that show up in my bill? Sure. So they have all sorts of different names. Here on your bill, I see like service and facility, usage fee, interstate pipelines. Mm. This is money Excel has gotten permission to bill you for, and it's what it charges all of its users for things it's built, for infrastructure projects. We're talking like new pipelines, new wind farms, new transmission systems. Okay, so part of my bill is these base rates that are going to pay for development projects. You said that Excel has to get permission to charge me those higher rates and build that stuff. Who do they get permission from? Is it the Public Utilities Commission? Exactly. That's one of the main jobs of the PUC is to consider what Excel wants to build uh -huh. and then tell the company how much it can charge its customers for any new project. Okay. And so have the state regulators said that Excel can raise those charges by a lot? It seems that way. Well, if you look at that same analysis comparing an average belt this winter to last winter, rate increases account for about 27% of the jump. Of that year-over-year -year increase. Of the year-over-year -year increase. And here's one thing that's really important to understand. These changes are how an investor-owned utility makes a profit to share with its investors. The state lets them get a rate of return just on these infrastructure projects, usually around 8 to 10%. Huh. 
So all those rates of return kind of add up over time, too. They do in a really big way. Look, Excel Energy made a record $1.74 billion in profit last year. In profit, wow. Yeah, and this is why. Not because of the weather or the war in Ukraine, those rising natural gas prices. Those just get directly passed on to customers with no profit added. Where they do make money is the stuff they're building, and that gets recovered again in base rates. And the more those go up, the more profits go up. All right, let's just go back and break it down again because we covered utility law in record time. Yeah. The recent surge in prices, most of what people are complaining about is a direct result of higher natural gas prices, the market, basically out of Colorado's control, out of Excel's control. And fortunately, by the way, those hikes seem to be subsiding. They're way down. Those are a big reason that your bill is higher, but not a big reason that Excel is making a bunch of profits. However, those higher direct costs are not the only reason that, for example, my bill is going up. There are also all these underlying costs that Excel can charge me, and those are slowly and steadily rising, nothing to do with the price of fuel. That's the part that is within control of regulators. And it's really important because Excel loves to tell people that the recent rise in prices doesn't have anything to do with their profits. But that's only partially true. Maybe the main reason has nothing to do with their profits and everything to do with volatile natural gas prices. But a smaller critical reason is that regulators have approved a couple base rate increases in the last year to cover the company's earlier investments and turn a tidy profit for their shareholders. It also approved a plan to let it recover the cost of natural gas it bought during an extreme cold snap in 2021. Uh All of that adds up to why you and so many other people in Colorado have had such a shocking moment when they open up their utility bills this last winter. So this system that we've got, where you have regulators who are an arm of the state telling a for-profit company how much money it can make and doing what, It's unusual. I don't think there's a lot of industries that work like this. Yeah, it's unique. And if you want to understand how we got here, you got to go way back uh, to like the turn of the 20th century. As always, it's time for a historical (laughs) aside. (laughs) Totally. This is the Mark of an Andy episode. So what is the story of how we ended up with these monopolies? Okay, so if we go back to the dawn of the electric age, people have started to realize that electricity can light their homes and run their fans. It's this miraculous product. It basically was going to be something that everyone would want. Having a, a, a basically a, something that everyone would want is a very good business model. This is Joshua Basiches. He's a political scientist who studies investor-owned utilities at Tulane University. He says these first investors in electricity networks, they knew they had a great product, but... Then they realized that in order to actually get this new technology of electricity to the end user, the homes and businesses, they basically had to construct all of this infrastructure, wires, substations, uh, generators, all of this elaborate system which we know today as the grid. And the tricky thing about the grid is it's really expensive to build. Once one customer is connected to a power plant, another company probably won't want to build a whole other set of wires to deliver cheaper electricity to that same customer. That They won't want to build redundant infrastructure and duplicate what 
some other investor has already done. Yeah, a huge investment just for the privilege of competing with somebody who's already established in the market. Exactly. So these capitalists start saying, hey, maybe we're just natural monopolies. Maybe it doesn't make sense for us to compete at all. And then they went from one state to another and basically created this, through legislation, this thing called the Regulatory Compact, where in exchange for having a monopoly over a designated service territory, they would permit the state to actually uh, determine the rates as well as other regulatory considerations. I feel like natural monopoly is a great marketing phrase. Like, sorry, guys, it's just natural. It's We're just a monopoly. It is. Can't sorry. help it. Yep. And I assume Colorado was one of the states where this happened, these regulated monopolies. Yeah, and it's not a neat and tidy story exactly. But in short, as electric and gas companies consolidated and these monopolies sprung up, the Colorado legislature eventually shifted the mission of its railroad commission to also regulate these power and gas companies. Bassett says some form of these commissions now exist in all 50 states. The investor-owned utilities now serve about 72% of electricity customers nationwide with the remainder served by those cooperatives and those publicly owned utilities. So Excel is the norm at this point. Mm -hmm. And anyway, once the PUC, the Public Utilities Commission here in Colorado was born, it had the goal, I assume, of finding that balance where what the companies make enough money to make it worthwhile, but at the same time don't get to use their monopoly power to totally bleed us dry. Yeah, that's the idea at least. Like, Mm. we know why monopolies are bad for consumers. Without competition, they can charge us whatever they want to charge. They can price gouge. Uh And the risk is even worse when those companies sell an essential product like electricity. These commissions were meant to give investors a way to offer electricity and gas while protecting the ratepayers. And to go back to what you said earlier, Sam, that Compact also offered investors a way to make money. They were not supposed to be profiting directly off the product, off electricity or gas, but they could profit in Colorado on infrastructure investments. Right. And here's how this works now. So, like, Excel will propose stuff it wants to build. Like what? We're talking, like, power lines, gas pipelines, wind farms, solar panels, really anything having to do with getting you electricity or gas. Got it. The PUC will review whether those plans make sense. And then later, the company will come back and ask to recover the costs that they paid for those projects from customers, Hmm. plus a rate of return for those investors. And that's a big decision for the PUC because ratepayers could be on the hook to cover those costs for decades and decades. So does this system kind of incentivize Excel to be a builder of stuff more so than just a power provider? Like, is it driving them? Is it giving them this incentive to just keep on finding stuff to build and justify? Yeah, this is really the main concern of consumer advocates who fight utilities before the PUC and and in the legislature. Hmm. People are waking up to the fact that they're really at the mercy of the system. And whatever Excel can convince the PUC to let them build and let it charge, people got to pay it. And Mm -hmm. that gets right back to your world, Andy, at the Capitol, because Uh lawmakers are now starting to look at whether this model still makes sense in 2023 or whether it needs to be reformed. I think those are the questions we want to ask ourselves. Is the system that we have set up, that we have created, that we have regulated, is it the same system that we still need today? So I see actually a a dilemma here because we were just raising the criticism that Excel has an incentive to build new power plants and infrastructure for its own sake, that they profit on that. But on the other hand, from everything I know, 
there actually is a lot of new infrastructure that we need to build, especially if we're going to cut down on carbon emissions and do something about climate change. We hear all the time about how we need a smart grid, solar power, wind power. So aren't we kind of beating up on Excel for building too much? Like, aren't we expecting them to build a lot? I think that's the really big question in all of this. This massive green energy transition is already happening due in part to laws that were approved here in Colorado. I mean, lawmakers have ordered Excel through legislation to reach 80% renewable electricity by 2030. And here's what's really interesting. The company isn't fighting this. They've embraced that job. You can hear them advertise it. Clean energy. The same reliable, more affordable energy that powers your home. Because a carbon-free future doesn't just happen. It only happens if we build it. Kind of funny to run ads when you're a monopoly. (laughs) Sure. Well, Excel wants you to know that they're here to save the day. You know, that's important. They want you, the public, to understand that. Also, do you think that was a real Philip Glass track in the background, or (laughs) was it a knockoff Philip Glass? I would bet it's a knockoff Philip Glass track, (laughs) but if you want to dig into that question, Andy, I will be tracking that down. Go and do it. This was actually an aha moment for me, realizing that like when those announcements came out, Excel's huge green energy plans, I was like, wow, these guys are really taking this on. And, you know, they are taking it on, but it also makes more sense when you realize that there's a lot of money to be made by taking it on if you're Excel. A lot of money in solar plants and wind farms and green energy grids. Right. Just to hammer this point once again, they make money from building stuff. So to connect the dots here, all these projects are going to take a lot of money, which means Excel is going to be back at the PUC a lot asking for rate hikes to cover all these capital costs. Let's stop here to acknowledge kind of a Republican conservative question and criticism that you hear around green energy a lot. So is this climate transition, all these big projects, is that a big part of why your bills are going up right now? It's a small part of the reason now, but not a huge reason. A lot of the base rate increases that we've seen and talked about, those are to pay for earlier investments, including things like a coal plant Excel built in Pueblo in 2010. But regulators have also approved lots of new renewable projects to help push the state towards its climate goals. So we're currently paying for the old power system and its maintenance and development still. And at the same time, they're starting to build a new one and that will cost us in the future. Right. And that could also push up base rates in the future. So the PUC last year approved a $10 billion plan from Excel to build all kinds of new wind, solar, transmission systems, Mm. including possibly some natural gas power plants, too. Those costs will likely be wrapped into future base rate increases, plus a return for shareholders. Ah, great. So no matter what happens with like fuel costs, I can guarantee that part of my bill will be higher in 2025. Yeah, I think the base rates will probably be higher. But here's the thing. Even if those base rates go up, wind and solar have one huge advantage over fossil fuels. You don't need to buy coal or gas to generate electricity anymore. There's no fuel costs with the wind and the sun because those things are free. And that means electricity could be cheaper to deliver to customers. And we could also insulate ourselves against these wild swings in the natural gas market. So yeah, maybe you'll be paying higher base rates, but the other big drivers of your bill could go away uh, at least a little bit. Interesting. So hopefully we exchange variable spiky rates for more stable lower rates. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, Excel is already and will continue to collect a rate of return on all these investments. And even if it does help bring down electricity costs, every single one of those windmills is going to be a 
spoon for Excel in some way. It's a guaranteed almost return on investment. So this sounds like a really good business for Excel to be in for the next 30 years, this green transition business. Yeah, and it's a big reason when I listen to their quarterly calls with investors, Wall Street analysts are really pleased with this company. But again, just because this stuff costs money, it could also have big financial benefits beyond just reducing CO2 emissions. It could really help control long-term energy costs. So this is going to be a huge affair, so many projects. How good is the PUC, how good is the state at actually figuring out whether Excel's plans are good? Like, how does it figure out if they're spending money in the right way, in a reasonable way, if rate increases are fair? Even if it's achieving something we want, doesn't Excel still have that motive to build too much or build too fancy if they get a return on everything they spend? Absolutely. Critics of Excel like to call their plans gold-plated, right, for that exact reason. And to get to your question, let's go back to Basich's, our political scientist, Uh because it's sort of the crucial question here. In this regulated monopoly system, who has the power, really? Is it the regulators or the monopoly? So if you have a monopoly corporation that has control over something as essential as electricity— makes it very hard for policymakers to not be deferential to, their, to what they want, to what their interests are. And that brings us back to this year and this legislative session. So in February, leaders at the Capitol announced a joint select committee, which didn't sound that impressive to me at first, but I've been told is quite rare and unusual. That committee's supposed to be looking at what's going on with Excel, what's going on with high energy bills. And again, it's the first time in my time covering state politics that I've actually seen this special powerful committee convened. I know they've met a few times already, and you've been watching it. It's not been my problem. What's your impression? Like, they're really willing to get into the big picture stuff? Do they have teeth? Are they going to really question Excel's whole business model? Or is this just a dog and pony show? Well, they've at least been willing to talk about Excel's fundamental business model. Hmm. At one of the recent hearings, Senate President Steve Fenberg, who put himself on the committee, pushed Excel President Robert Kenny on why they have such high profits and why customers have to help pay for those profits. Why is that the situation we're living in right now? Why are we simultaneously living in a time where people are struggling the most to pay their bill, energy bill, and at the same time the utilities are making the most profits they've ever made? Before we get into this, I want to disclose there's no relation between Robert Kenny and Andrew Kenny. Yeah, different guy. He's from Missouri, different dude. So what did this other Kenny, this presumably much wealthier Kenny, have to say about this? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a little, he's got some cash on hand. But <laughs> Kenny said that this is just kind of the way financing for investor-owned utilities works. Look, Excel needs to build big, expensive things to serve Colorado well. But to build those things, it needs investment, money from Wall Street. And Wall Street is only going to front that money if it knows it'll get paid back in the long run. And that's part of what the commission is doing, is setting that rate. Um, so that we can attract capital. Capital has choices about where it decides to go. And so people can deploy their capital wherever they want to go. And so part of the commission's job is to make sure that they're setting that at a rate that makes sure that we're able to attract capital um, as as cost-effectively as possible. In other words, he's saying, look, you want us to build all this stuff, but that's going to take the equivalent of a gigantic mortgage. You have to give us the ability to pay it off or none of this is going to happen. All right. So the assumption here is that state government basically can't come up with all this money on its own. So instead, we got to let capitalists capitalize and come up with the money themselves and give returns to their investors. Does that mean that Excel customers just kind of have to suck it up and 
let Excel do what it does and watch their bills rise and rise? Well, not exactly. I mean, there are definitely ideas out there to improve the balance of power to ensure that when bills do go up, it's only by as much as necessary. The simplest would be just to rein in Excel's political power to make sure that regulators aren't being unduly persuaded to approve these base rate increases. Although, of course, regulators would say they're not being unduly influenced now also. So with this reform, like, how do you reduce the utilities' political power? Do you ban them from lobbying the PUC? Yeah, or at least limit how much money they could spend on those activities, how many experts and lawyers they could hire. A recent Excel report shows it spent about half a million dollars on lobbying in Colorado, and that's just political lobbying. Hmm. It likely spent far more advocating before regulators. Uh-huh. And on the other side, lawmakers could also beef up Colorado's Office of the Consumer Advocate, which advocates for lower rates at the PUC. So basically say, we know there's tons of these fights to come. We're going to curb Excel's lobbying power in those fights and put more firepower behind their opposition, more firepower on the consumer side. But you've also hinted, Sam, that there's some talk about bigger ideas than just kind of changing the balance there. Totally. And there's a real range of possibilities out there on how to reform Excel's business model. On the really big side of things, Colorado could just throw out this whole regulated monopoly idea and try to introduce some competition. So the idea there would be that Excel would become more of the energy distributor. They would like own the the power lines and the way energy gets to people. Uh But they would buy that energy from wholesalers who have the wind farms, the solar farms, the power plants, and those wholesalers could compete on price so that electricity is a little cheaper for the end user. So instead of being the supplier and the dealer, Excel would just be the distributor. And what would homeowners get to choose between like different producers? Like I want this brand of electricity coming to my house. Totally. I mean, that's the way it works in Texas now. Uh-huh. And I think bringing up Texas, you know, you have to talk about how its grid almost completely failed during a huge cold snap in 2021. That incident may have killed as many as 700 people, according to one report in BuzzFeed. And there were all these stories of people who survived that crisis, whose lights stayed on, but then got power bills in the thousands of dollars from their utilities. Yeah, like a real cautionary tale about deregulation undermining the integrity of the grid itself. Totally. On the other hand, you got to say Texas is building solar and wind faster than any other state in the country. So it seems like that approach isn't preventing the green transition. Right. Because, again, there's money to be made. So you've got Colorado with a regulated monopoly, Texas with something much closer to the free market. Is there like a middle ground? Totally. I would say the middle ground is you stick with the regulated utility model, Uh but then you rethink how Excel makes its money. So like we've talked about, the current rules of the game say they profit when they build new stuff, which gives them this incentive to build fancy things that maybe we don't need. Colorado could change that and say, Excel, hey, you're still allowed to profit, but only when you reduce overall energy usage or only when you do a really good job delivering reliable electricity at a low cost. So the profits would come as a reward for a job well done based on whatever criteria regulators set up, not just for building infrastructure. So stick with the same model. Don't go Texas on it, but introduce some new incentives. Meanwhile, I got to say, there's like a little radical voice in the back of my head that wants to know why keep this model at all? Why, when you talk about other like giant pieces of infrastructure, roads, government builds those, owns those for the most part, except for all these toll roads, 
is there a world where Colorado just comes up with $50 billion or whatever and makes this huge one-time investment and buys out Excel and runs it publicly? Could that ever happen? Yeah. Why don't we just throw a copy of the Communist Manifesto at Robert <laughs> Kenny's head? <laughs> Look, it's actually not that radical of an idea. There are places in this state where government-run utilities, including Colorado Springs, you know, this like conservative bastion has a municipal utility. Hmm. But that goes all the way back to the dawn of the electrical age. They've always been set up that way. Sorry, you mean like the the municipal utilities have, have existed basically since the dawn of the electric right. age? Right, yeah. You, some municipal electricities go all the way back to the turn of the 20th century, which we talked about earlier. They were set up that way originally. It's a lot harder to change from private to public. Uh, look at Boulder. It tried to shift from a public utility for about a decade. Excel Energy fought them to death, and the city eventually dropped that bid to municipalize in 2020. So while there is a lot of talk of doing something about Excel, so that's one idea that doesn't really seem to be on the table. They're so entrenched. It's been this way for so long that it seems impossible to publicize the system at this point. Right. In that way, we might be stuck with Excel. Okay, so we started off talking about high utility bills and the very real pain and outrage that they're causing in Colorado. Then we talked through how complicated and expensive and fraught and hard to change this whole system is. So, Sam, what do you think actually is going to come out of this moment that we're in? I think we have to wait to see what lawmakers really do after finishing these joint select committee hearings, what bills they actually introduce. Mm -hmm. I can tell you the issues they're talking about a lot is, hey, maybe we should limit what Excel and other big companies can do before the Public Utilities Commission, limit how many experts they can bring, how much they can spend, maybe beef up the Office of the Consumer Advocate, stuff like that, that seems to be on the table. Talking about changing the balance of power, like really raising that question of how it should be balanced. Yeah, that could be one thing. Another thing we've heard a lot about from Governor Polis, from environmental groups, is that, you know, Excel, we've talked about it a lot as an electricity company, but also has this huge natural gas side of its business. And the more it invests in that, the more its consumer base is tied to this really volatile commodity market. Hmm. So what policies could accelerate this shift away from natural gas, especially for home heat to electricity, which could have these advantages of cheaper renewable energy in the long run. And at the same time, as you're tackling this huge transition that has big profit margins for Excel, like how do you adapt this utility regulation system for this new age, for this enormous infrastructure project we're taking on? And I'd say that's the bigger stuff that we don't know if they're going to really go there this year, at least. Are they really going to try to open up Excel's profit motive and, and change how it works? That's a little less clear right mm. now. But what I would say goes back to our political scientist, Joshua Bassiches. He says that just in general, there's been a huge jump in this really wonky utility stuff nationwide. Another reason that utilities have benefited so much is because nobody has been paying attention to all of this, right? We, we've, we've arrived at a new era, you know, we can call it energy democracy, where once people realize how the sausage is made, so to speak, then they get really interested. 
And I really think this is important, and I want to emphasize this. I have seen this happen in Colorado in my job. This last year alone, there are just like way more people testifying at the Colorado Public Utilities Commission. And just in general, they know like way more about this stuff than I do. They are really good at digging into the drudgery and pushing regulators to honor their commitments to battle climate change, to honor their commitments, to keep costs low for everybody. Wow. And I think that's a big reason the legislature wants to talk about all this. They see the public keying in and it's pushing them to take action. And I think the question now is if they're just going to nibble around the edges or really challenge these powerful monopolies and the systems they depend on. Andrew Kenny, Sam Brash, and Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. Follow this and all the episodes wherever you get your podcasts, and as always, at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. You'll probably hear one before you see it, though seeing the western meadowlark isn't necessarily hard to do as they reside in much of Colorado year-round, and they like finding tall, open perches to call from. That could be a fence post in an open field, the top of a road sign along a rural highway, or even a high stalk of grass. Robin-sized, western meadowlarks are mottled white and brown on their upside, and breeding-age birds have brilliant, bright yellow undersides with a sharp V on the chest. The male of the western meadowlark may have more than one mate at a time, and though he helps with feeding nestlings, the female does most of that work, as his job will take him back to the fence post to attract another mate or ward off another suitor. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio, with the support of Coble & Company. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Is it possible to miss a place you've never been? I think the answer is yes, because there's a spectacular building that got knocked down long before I moved to Colorado. It's something I think about all the time. Never saw it for myself. Never went inside, but I miss it. And I'm not alone, according to author Mark A. Barnhouse. His latest book is called Vanished Denver Landmarks. And in July, I met him where this bygone building used to be. Hi, Mark. Hi, Ryan. Uh, where are we and what used to be here? We're standing uh, near the corner of 16th and Curtis Streets in downtown Denver. This was the Tabor Grand Opera House. And it, Grand is right. Grand is right. Uh, Horace Tabor, who'd made a fortune from mining in Leadville, decided he wanted to play a bigger role in the capital city of Denver. So he came to Denver in 1879. He built the city's finest office building down on the corner of Larimer. And then two years later, he came up here to Curtis Street and gifted the city with its first major, wonderful theater building. What stands here now, and where we are standing, is the Federal Reserve Branch Bank. Correct. uh, Which is a brutalist building that, you know, is very different from the Tabor Grand Opera House. Is it understandable to you that I miss a building I never knew, Mark? I mean, when I I look at the Tabor Grand, I just think, my goodness, if I could have been inside. I agree. I, I've been that way forever myself with old photographs of uh, old buildings. And that Tabor was heavily photographed. There's even one I have uh, 
scene that is taken in 1947, and it was dingy, it was dirty, but it was still beautiful. It had a 1,500-seat auditorium inside. The interior was as impressive as the exterior. Gas chandeliers? Gas chandeliers, beautiful carpets, cherry wood paneling, plush upholstery. I mean, and it was the sort of high Victorian grandeur. Murals, uh, a beautiful scenic mural painted above the proscenium arch. And of course, the famous stage curtain that was also painted uh, and somewhat prophetic in Tabor's case, since it was it talked about how fleet the works of man are, and then in the Panic of 1893, he lost all his money. Could you describe the architecture a bit? You said Victorian, I think. Well, yeah, Queen Anne is kind of the term, more of a commercial Queen Anne. Uh, the architect was Willoughby Edbrook. He was from Chicago, and he had sent his brother Frank Edbrook out to Denver, originally to supervise the office building's construction, and then he continued supervising here, and then Frank stayed in Denver and became our city's most prominent late 19th century architect. You called the Tabor Grand Opera House a gift to the city. It's not that he gave it to the city. No, it was a commercial enterprise, to be sure. And, you know, the shows had to make money. The building wasn't entirely an opera house. There was office space on all the floors uh, surrounding the auditorium space, and, of course, retail on the street level. Torn down in 1964, but not because of urban renewal, which was the reason so many of Denver's great buildings were raised. Well, I would say yes and no to that, because in the 60s, in the 50s really starting then, there was a whole push, not only in Denver, but in in most large cities, to do urban renewal. And here in Denver, before the Denver Urban Renewal Authority got really going downtown, some private industries around here wanted to clean up the area. And so the Central Bank and Trust Company, which was not far from here at 15th and Arapahoe, formed a realty company, and they started buying up nearby blocks and tearing things down. You, you described at this point the Tabor Opera House as being dingy. Yeah. It, it was dingy, but it was still beautiful. Uh, it just needed cleaning up and probably updating with you know new plumbing and whatnot. But it could have been saved. But it wasn't. It was not. Uh, Originally, the spot was slated to be an apartment building, uh, similar to Brooks Towers, which was another one of the central bank's projects. And which used to be the tallest building in Denver. I think it was, yes. And they had announced an apartment project for this site. But also, at the same time, the Federal Reserve Bank was in very cramped quarters over a block away at 17th and Arapahoe. And they were talking about possibly moving the Federal Reserve Branch Bank to the suburbs, which had all the downtown banks kind of in a tizzy, hmm. because they, the, the main function in those days, everybody wrote checks for everything. And so the Federal Reserve Bank, all these checks would be loaded onto armored trucks and brought to the bank for processing. Huh. It was a clearinghouse. So this was actually built mostly to process you know, checks. This Federal Reserve Bank that we're standing next to in the brutalist style, which, by the way, comes from the French for concrete, even though it has a brutal quality to it. Uh, That same year, 1964, something else happened in terms of historic preservation. Well, just a few blocks away, a young woman named Dana Crawford. She had come downtown one hot summer day and her car stalled back in the days when people had vapor lock. Her car stalled on the 1400 block of Larimer Street and she fell in love and she decided to develop it into Larimer Square. And Dana Crawford, now the namesake of the Crawford Hotel, largely responsible for the re-envisioning of Union Station and indeed the saving of Larimer Square, Denver's oldest block. And much of Lodo. 
But uh, I guess she missed the Tabor Grand Opera House by a little bit. Just a bit. Well, speaking of demolition, I understand your grandfather, Mark, won the contract to tear down a different building, the Old City Hall. The Old City Hall, it was the pride of Denver in uh, 1881 when it opened, but it was rendered obsolete when the city built a city and county building up on Civic Center. And it became the police headquarters for some years, Uh, then the police built their own, the fire department used it as their headquarters, but it was considered an eyesore and the city decided to tear it down. I have to say, I have always assumed the city county building Mm -hmm. that exists today, it's imposing and old looking enough that I thought it was always the city seat, but it was not. It was built in 1932, or finished in 1932. Do you miss the old city hall in the way that I miss the Tabor Grand Opera House? Well, I mean, I do. It would, it would, I think it would be a nice thing to have on the corner of Larimer Square, which is where it was. Yeah. Right across. My family told me when I was a small child, about six years old, we were visiting Larimer Square with my grandmother, and we parked in that parking lot across from Larimer Square, and my mother pointed out the bell, the old brass bell that's sitting there on that cement pedestal. Oh, I've never noticed it. It's right there across, you know, right there on the corner. Next time you're down there, check it out. But this bell was City Hall's bell. And the family legend, which I cannot verify, was that it was my grandfather's idea to save the bell and put it there. So different from being saved by the bell, I guess. guess Saving the bell itself. He he didn't like tearing it down. He actually felt badly about it. He he liked to build things, not tear them down, but he needed to feed his family. And uh, he was the low bidder when they put out uh, requests for bids. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And historian and author Mark A. Barnhouse joins us. He's written Vanished Denver Landmarks. We're standing at the site of one of those vanished landmarks now, where the Federal Reserve is these days, used to be the stunning Tabor Grand Opera House. You divide your book about vanished landmarks into residential ones, commercial, retail, hospitality, and institutional. Uh, Why don't you tell us about the Windsor Hotel, not far from here at 18th and Larimer, People wanted to save it, but they just couldn't. It had a huge sentimental value for a lot of Denverites of the 50s and 60s because there were so many wonderful legends about it. And it, like the Tabor Opera House, it was associated with Horace Tabor. Ah. It was built with English capital, and when it was under construction, Horace Tabor and his partner William Bush decided that they wanted to operate it. And so Tabor took a master lease on the property and was responsible for turning it into Denver's finest hotel of the the era. Keep in mind, this is a full decade before the Brown Palace, more than a decade. Oh, goodness, before the Brown Palace. Before the the Brown Palace. And then, of course, the English money makes me think of the name, the Windsor Hotel. Although it was actually named for a hotel by the same architect that was built in Montreal. Okay. (laughs) And there was a desire to save it, I guess... Uh, people had grown quite fond of it, but well, that didn't and occur. you know, famously, Jack Kerouac came through in the late '40s, and uh, if you've read On the Road, you know there's that wonderful scene that takes place in the novel in the bar, the Windsor Bar, uh, which had been you know, the scene of so much over the years. Well, in fact, you have brought On the Road with you. Do you care to read that passage, Mark? Sure. Remember that the Windsor, once Denver's great Gold Rush Hotel 
and in many respects a point of interest. In the big saloon downstairs, bullet holes are still in the walls. Mm. Had once been Dean's home. That's Dean Moriarty. Yes. He'd lived here with his father in one of the rooms upstairs. He was no tourist. He drank in this saloon like the ghost of his father. He slopped down wine, beer, and whiskey like water. His face got red and sweaty, and he bellowed and hollered at the bar and staggered across the dance floor where honky-tonkers of the West danced with girls and tried to play the piano. And he threw his arms around ex-cons and shouted with them in the uproar. So this would become a dwelling place of ex-cons. It perhaps had lost its luster? Uh, Larimer by then was Skid Row. It was lined with taverns and uh, pawn shops and, and pool halls and that kind of thing. Let's wrap up with your favorite vanished landmark. This is a residential one called Brinton Terrace. Brinton Terrace. When I was writing this book, I, I wanted to include major well-known landmarks like the Windsor and the Opera House and so yeah. on. But I wanted to include some things that maybe people didn't know about. Brinton Terrace was uh, one of Denver's first luxury apartment buildings. Built in 1882, uh, it was behind Trinity Methodist Church, although Trinity wasn't actually built yet, mm. at the corner of 18th and Lincoln Streets. And originally, it was kind of a high society apartment house. It was for people who, uh, who wanted to be in society, they wanted to be near the city, but they didn't want to have the upkeep of a big yard and a big house. So That's going to speak to a lot of families today. Even now, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, this was going on, you know, a century and a half ago. But over time, what made Britain so very interesting is that... In 1906, the owner at that point decided she wanted to create, and it was a woman, wanted to create a a place that artists of all sorts could live under one roof and collaborate. Hmm. And it it got to be uh, very bohemian. There were architects, visual artists, sculptors, poets, singers, musicians, you name it, any kind of art. We might think of it as a co-op today to some extent. Yeah, I think that's that's a good description. And was the idea that they were subsidized a bit? No, these, these, this is long before the National Endowment for the Arts or anything like that. Uh-huh. They collaborated, though. There, there's an old library building in West Denver that used to be the Dickinson Library. And the architect uh, was Maurice Bisco, who lived at, here at the Brinton Terrace. And then the murals were by Alan True, the muralist who, who lived in Brinton Terrace. Ah, and that's the muralist whose work also appears in the state capitol. And the Brown Palace and other places, And yes. the Colorado National Bank Building. Mm-hmm. So he was there at Brinton. Yes, he was. It must have been quite the atmosphere, Mark. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, in the book, I, I describe a scene where there were so many, in the summertime with the windows open, with all the people practicing their music, it would have been quite a cacophony. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I guess it's time to vanish ourselves. Okay. Mark A. Barnhouse has written Vanish Denver Landmarks. We spoke in July. And that is Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.